Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Buckley, and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the House Culture Podcast hosted by me, the Managing Editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. As ever, I hope you're managing to stay safe in your bubbles out there. I hope we can cure some of that frustration you might be having by delivering some good vibes from the club directly into your lockdown life at home. If you're a returning listener, thanks once again for tuning in and I hope you have enjoyed the stories that have been told on the podcast during this second season from such personalities as Fatboy Slim, Danny Rampling, Dawn Hindle, Smoking Joe, Mark Archer and Shades of Rhythm. Also, if you haven't already, get stuck into the folk featured in our first season where we chatted to legends such as Greg Wilson, Terry Farley and Danny Clockwork. And if this is your first time and you're not familiar with house culture and what we stand for, We are a collective of house music fans who have come together through our mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Instagram is our home at housecultureNet. That's where you can get up close and personal with us and like-minded individuals from across the world. Let's get on with this next episode, yes? In this one, we chat to a DJ who, after being inspired by a visit to the Hacienda, went on to become a regular DJ there before landing residencies at places such as Back to Basics, Renaissance and We Love at the infamous Ibiza Club Space. His name's Buckley, and as you'll hear, the man is full of stories, like recalling the first time he visited the Hacienda. We got pointed down this little cobbled street that was over the road from the Hacienda. First thing I saw was this guy, like, tucking an air horn down his pants. What's going on here? And then we went round the corner, and there must have been about a thousand people queuing outside his club. I was like, what is going on here? I've never seen a queue like this for a club before it's open. His most important DJ residencies... I really came into my own up musically and as a DJ when I started playing at Basics. I remember Dave Beer saying to me, he was like, you've got a fan club because we've never had a resident yet in the history of the club where people are coming to see the resident and more importantly you. And he was like, your sound's the sound of the club. What happened when he put his record collection of 8,012 inches up for sale? 
So I just went, just seen that Seth Troxler's bought Dave Aslav's record, seriously thinking about selling mine, serious offers only. And it just went bonkers. I was in the enemy. You've never mentioned me once in all the years of playing them. And now I'm selling them. You want to write about me? I'm like, that's irony for you. And the effect this whole scene has had on his life. Endless good times. The whole summer of love and the reverberations of that will go with me to my grave and wherever I go from then on. So strap in for an epic trip that takes in not only Manchester, Leeds and Ibiza, but also India, Peru and Costa Rica. This is Buckley. House Culture. Hi Buckley. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Excellent. Welcome to the House Culture Podcast. Thanks for sitting down with us. My pleasure to be here. Inviting us to your flat in East London here. It's got, we've got decks right in front of me, a whole section of vinyl, which is good to see. You've been on the house music scene for many years, holding residencies at some of the biggest nights across the UK and in Ibiza and around the world as well. Thinking Renaissance, Hacienda, Back to Basics, We Love Sundays at Space. And come on to all of those in our chat. Sounds good when you when you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what happened? Got you tell me. So we want to start at the beginning. Can you just tell us about your your experiences with music growing up, and when did that kind of light bulb go on for you in terms of your love of music? Classic cliche of um, you know house always being full of music. I don't ever know a time. As long as I can remember, music's always been in my life. I'm the youngest of four children. So there was a time where where me and my two brothers and sister, where we all lived at home together, you know, at the same time. My eldest brother, you know, he'd left home by the time I was maybe six or something. But I definitely remember a time where, you know, there was me and my next brother who was... So say when I was five, he'd have been 12, my other brother. Mm. My sister had been 14. My eldest brother had been 16. So they all played music and all different types. I was always into it. My parents were into it. I can actually remember this where we used to have... So obviously the big thing then was just pop music, as far as I'm aware of, you know. But pop music was so diverse as well. There was all kinds of stuff in there. But um, So this was before I could read. I'd be like a couple of years old, maybe three, four years old, if that. I don't know. It's a long time, but I can actually remember doing it. I'd know what the records were, so they'd they'd shuffle the forty fives like a pack of cards, and they'd yeah. hold them up to me, and I'd be like Gary Glitter, Mud, The Sweet, David Essex, or whatever was it. So I was that, you know, and we had one of those old gramophone record player things where you know it's a piece of furniture in it, but you lift the mm. lid up, it's got a record player in it, little section for for where your vinyl would go. I actually remember being freaked out, but kind of in a good way, like intrigued as well. Even though I knew the record player was in there and you put a record on and you you could leave the lid top up. But I'd put the lid down and then just kind of imagine these like little people like like morph off take art or something like this little band of people like playing music in there. And that's and that's how, and that's what I was listening to. That's how this music was coming out of this little, this little cabinet. So I was always into music. I think as far as I know, yeah, I think it was six or seven when my sister bought me Saturday Night Fever, which I was already obsessed with, for my seventh birthday, I think. Mm. So that was the first time I remember where I was like, that was the start of my record collection. Yeah, it's like, all right, this dark, great record this, to this start is it mine. with. <laughs> and uh, well, a crazy thing had happened. I watched um, South Bank show with Melvin Bragg. Yeah. I obviously should have been in bed at the time this was on. I was I was like six years old or something. And for some reason, I'm still up. This is on on a Sunday night. And Melvin Bragg speaking to um, Robert Stigwood, who produced it, mm-hmm. and made Saturday Night Fever. And they showed some clips of the film. And I was just like, wow, this is for me. You know, it was showing all the obvious clips, you know, yeah. in the clubs dancing. I was just, even at that age, 
and that music with being too young to know anything i was just like i was like this is amazing so i was waiting for it to come round, and when eventually when the film came out it was uh an 18. Right? yes yeah, it's, uh, it's well, quite a dark film you watch it now there's yeah, some dark stuff in that um I mean, they don't even call them 18s. Back then, I think... the it's like the, an X or something, maybe. Yeah, it was an X, actually. Yeah. yeah, you're right. I remember it coming around. I was like, oh, I got it. I couldn't, I couldn't go watch it. My sister went. My mum and dad went to see it at the cinema. I couldn't go. But um, they bought me the album. And on the inside, on the gatefold sleeve, was like lots of images from the film. Mm-hmm. Lots of stills of him dancing. And through over this period of a few months, while all the singles are being released off the album, the film's out, the film's hot. You know, first of all, it's staying alive. Then it's, uh, you know, how deep is your love, whatever it is. There was about four or five singles from the film that got released. And each video would be showing more scenes from the film on top of the pop. So I, I kind of made up in my head what the film was <laughs> and how it happened and what, what what went where. And I used to copy the pictures. I was obsessed massively, like fanatical. But the funny thing is, actually, in terms of music, that never left. Mm. Whenever I got into something, I was into it. Yeah. So that was when I was seven. For example, like a couple of years later, when I was into like like by seventy nine, when the specials first came out and the whole two tone thing, yeah. you know, I'd I'd be looking at who produced records. I'd be reading the small print. Who's on the Who's on the credits? Who wrote it? What does that actually mean? Yeah, you know, why is this guy's name in brackets? What does that mean? And like just and everything about it. I knew what, whatever band I was into. I know everything about every member in them. Uh, just like proper nerdy. Yeah, and those vinyl albums kind of allowed that as well for you to like just sit there and absorb, like you said, yeah. all the pictures from the gatefold, who did what, what did these things mean, give you kind of like a background and understanding without even realising at the time that it's kind of seeding that. That, but also being able to just create a whole little, I mean, so obviously we're talking about Saturday Night Fever there, but just other records as well, you know, other groups and, mm. you know, and you mentioned before, you just mentioned the specials there and before the mics came on, you mentioned about the jam and being a mod and, and kind of moving into that scene. I mean, the, the jam, but, so I knew about the jam from the start. My brother, their second, <laughs> their second single, that's how nearly I am, but their second single was a track called All Around the World. And I remember my brother, the next one up from me, who's seven years older than me, I remember him buying that and bringing that single home in 77, so I'm like six. Yeah. And I remember looking at it and reading on the back, and because like the opening line of the song is, all over the country, what a new direction, then a new creation, then a new reaction. And it said action, create, you know, on the back. I was like, yeah. what does that mean? And, but also at the same time, it's like Boontown Rats and Kate Bush and all that other kind of stuff that was going on in uh, 70s pop. But like two years later, by 79, was the whole two-tone thing, which all kind of happened at the same time. You had the specials bad manners yeah selector body snatchers the the beat you know madness yeah zeitgeist kind of thing it's like all these different different towns from london to coventry to birmingham you know all doing this same two-tone scar thing but kind of unknowingly and then we come 70 the you know once once it started happening then they become aware of each other yeah in different towns doing this doing a similar thing which was the connection so i got into that but that really that was all short-lived by that started in 79, the two-tone thing. By 1980, certainly by 81, it, it was all over. 
Mm. Certainly the two-tone and the label was all over. There was a kind of only madness that survived that and they'd become something else. So then I went back to the jam. I was 10 years old and uh, they were the first live gig I ever went to see when I was 11. Just before they split up, I saw them. Where was that? Leeds, Queens Hall. It's not there anymore. Yeah. Big hall where people did have car exhibitions and record fairs and all kinds of things. And loads of people played there as well in Leeds. I saw them there when I was 11. So yeah, so I was like massively into them, fanatical about them. And then kind of as they went into the Star Council. Yeah, uh, what were your feelings on that? Yeah, I, re- I liked all that jazzy stuff that they were doing. And it also opened me up to other styles of music at a really early age. Yeah. In fact, I got, without a doubt, without Paul Weller, I probably wouldn't have found certain styles of music in the way that I did. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because I yeah. was like, I was fanatical about him because um, I, was, I was just that young and he was he was the thing. That's what I was into. Yeah. But I remember, like, they used to do One Nation under a groove, Funkadelic, mm. as an encore. I remember going to see them in Nottingham. I bought the programme, and it was and it was saying in the programme, it, it mentioned about George Clinton, Funkadelic. Yeah. So I didn't know who they were. And then almost like serendipity, it was like within, I can't remember, but it didn't say, it seemed like within no time at all, it was like, I've read this programme, and it also name-checked Jimmy Cliff, mm-hmm. which at this stage I was unaware of. Yeah, Pretty much at the same time, I was at a friend's, a friend of my mum's, and I was going through with their records, and I was like, brand spanking version of Jimmy Cliff, the harder they come. I was like, yeah. oh, wow. And she was like, well, take it, you can have it. No way. I was like, really? And then scrolled on a couple more records, and yeah. it was uh, Funkadelic, One Nation Under a Groove, the <laughs> album. She was like, take it. So, uh, wow. You know, I had them and, and other things as well that I'd that I'd just read that you know because we we didn't have internet and stuff like yeah. that then you know not you know TV wasn't really giving you much but I used to do record fairs just we, without even being able to afford records just mm. seeing what's going on and the, because a lot of the record fairs and that back then were like about rare records and yeah. bootleg recordings of gigs and stuff so I just go along and look at that and see what we're about and look at artwork and stuff and just daydream on on that and maybe <laughs> years later come oh that's that it's like yeah. unfinished business so I was always in always in a musical and always fanatical about whatever it was same as when I got into you know I had a spell where I was like lived and breathed reggae I was mm. like that's it <laughs> I had dreads so yes yeah, so I was really fanatical about that that's when I was 16 and then you know, two years into that mm. was when I first went to the Hacienda for the first time and I was kind of like, and that was it, game changer. Yeah, yeah. And I guess here we are. I mean, <laughs> here we are from that. Yeah. So what year was that? So that that was the first discovery of house music at the Hacienda, that mm. first visit, well, would you say? Or really what drew that, you there in the first place? Uh, serendipity again, actually, because uh, not not what it was about. That's not what I got yeah. there. That was just the surprise. That was the icing on the cake. Yeah. You know, we went there to meet some girls, basically, some yeah. girls from Blackpool. <laughs> so we're, we're from Leeds. These girls are from Blackpool. Manchester's in the middle. And these girls were like, oh, have you have you heard of a club called Arsienda? I was like, no. And they said, well, why don't we meet there? And, you know, it's halfway for you. It's halfway for us. Yeah. So it was like, all right, cool. Let's do that. And um, I remember it. Every, everything about that, obviously, I can speak about it fondly, but it was like everything about that summer was amazing. It was like, you know... So this was the summer of... Uh, 89. Yeah. Uh, heat, it was a heat wave as well. It was like really hot. And you could feel it in the air that something was happening before the papers had got hold of it and before the it had been coined in the media and that. You could just sense it. You could feel it in in the air. And uh, it was... I'd never actually been outside of Leeds for a night out. 
I know I'd only ever been to Manchester once before, I think, as a kid, and I went on a coach with my mum. So, um, so that was a big deal as well. Just kind of like I remember, I remember it crystal clear because it was uh, this, you know, it's still broad daylight because it was midsummer. Well, I say midsummer. This was like I don't know, April, May of '89, uh, and listening to Jeff Young on Radio One, mm-hmm. who Pete Tong took over from, and yeah. so he used to play really cool stuff, and he, he you know, playing some cool housey bits and. Uh, so yeah, it was totally by accident. We got there, never saw the girls, never actually saw them at, at all. <laughs> and I remember just like, so we, you know, we must have got an address for it somewhere. So we're asking people, we're, you know, we're on Dean's Gate. We're like, mm. do you know where Whitworth Street is? Or you know where the Hacienda is? And so yeah, go down there, turn left. There. And we got pointed down this road, this little cobbled street that was over the road from the Hacienda, kind of round the corner and over the road. And uh, the first thing I saw was this guy like tucking a tucking an air horn down his down his pants. <laughs> And the thing is, the Hacienda was not a ravey thing. Mm-hmm. Whatever people might think, it wasn't a rave. All this was before rave had been coined, so it wasn't that. Right? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't all glow sticks and whistles and that. It was. It wasn't that. But the, there was a few air horns in that there that summer, as good as they were, they were great. But I remember seeing this guy and he's tucking him down, and he was just like really buzzing. He's like, "You alright, mate?" I'm like, "Yeah." It was like, it "Was like." We've just come from Leeds where everyone's still drinking and like fighting each other and stuff. It's like, this is all a bit weird. Everyone's a bit, we hadn't even got in a club and you could already feel it. Like, where are yeah. you from? Yeah. So like, oh, we just drove from Leeds. And where, where are you from? He's like, oh, from Blackburn. All right. And he and he's t- tucking his hair, hair on down his pants. I'm thinking, I've never seen anyone in a club with their hair on. Like, uh, this is what, what's going on here. And then we went around the corner and there must have been about a thousand people queuing outside this, at this club already like just i was like what is going on here i've never seen a queue like this for a club before it's open yeah. I, i've never seen a club like that i've never seen a queue like that for a club never mind when, you know before it's open so the whole thing was exciting like ooh, what you know what are we and, and just checking everyone out i remember how mixed the queue was you know loads of black people in the queue as well as uh, white people and everything else in between Lots of different styles because it had not it had not quite become just that acid house thing. Mm-hmm. So you still had different groups of dancers in clubs. You st- like so there's a bunch of people in like spats and jazz jazz clothes doing uh, formation jazz dancing and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And then you got people with like guys with like you know long hair. I've got long you know long bobs and and converse and stuff like that and it, you know that that baggy look. And everyone just looked really cool. And I was like this you know this looks this looks the dogs and I've not even got in there, right? Uh, and then obviously the club opens and the windows are rattling and I'm like, what is this? What is this? And uh, and as you walk, so eventually we get in, maybe we're queued for an hour or something. Uh, and there was no late licensing then as well. So the club was only open from nine till two. Mm-hmm. And um, as you walked in, because it was an old boat factory and um, originally, and kind of kept the that warehouse look of the house. As you walked in, there were like these long plastic kind of these rubber curtains, see through. Oh right, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. And they're all scratched and dirty and stuff. But you could see the silhouettes and and the lights kind of bouncing off it. And I kind of pulled them back. Mm-hmm. And it was just like it was off. I was like, wow, what is this? What is this place? And I was like, I was like, that's it, that's it, that'll do me. I'm, this this is this is home for me. Yeah. And it was for years after, but just on so many levels it was like I'd already been you know I was where where I'd been able to pick up bits of house leading up until that point I was already getting the bug I was listening to some pirate radio stations in Leeds mm-hmm. that were playing a lot of like DJ Fast Steady and stuff like that yeah. uh, stuff like Unit 3 yeah uh, from Bradford 
and I knew Nightmares on Wax, you know, they were, they were playing at the warehouse in Leeds. Even back then, clubs were different. You, there, was no, there was no house club that played house all night. Yeah. And no DJ that actually kind of nailed it to that level. So you go to clubs, you'd have the clubs that have, clubs that were only open till two that have four DJs or five DJs. Want to play rock? Want to mm. play indie? Want to play soul? You get half an hour of house, you know. So you'd have to stand in a club and wait for your turn, you know, for for another hour and a half, two hours to get half an hour, and you'd get the old, you know, same old what was about, you know, love can't turn around and mm. a few. Obvious things like that, Jackie Body maybe or whatever, yeah. but um, it's still good and exciting. So I was kind of like, I was getting there, I was getting there with it, and then when I went to the Hacienda, I mean everything about it, the club, but just just music aside, uh, uh, the music was just like next level to me. It was just so exciting, and I was instantly kind of just like, what is going on? Because I'd never heard a DJ mix like constantly. Yeah, right. And at this point, I had no idea about beat matching. Mm-hmm. So I didn't realise that, that, you know, to get a nice kind of seamless blend, you've got to be in time. So I was just like, these guys are magicians. I'm like, what? I'm like, whoa, like, how creative are they? What must they be thinking to even do this stuff with records? And and they were playing acapellas and stuff. Obviously, I didn't know what acapellas was. I was like, how come every other record's got, come on, let's work. I'm like, <laughs> like, every record's got that on it. And it was like, I, was, I heard Doug Lazy get it rolled about six times, but it was the acapella yeah. over stuff. And that was instant. And like, we'd, every week I'd go, we'd be on the stage dancing. I'd be tapping my mates. I'd be hanging off my mates' shoulders, just pointing at the boot, going, have you heard that? Have you heard that? Every time there'd be a mix. Have you heard that? And it'd be like, even what I've realised now is like, because it was because it was like the the standards were being set, so there was nothing mm-hmm. to compare it to. So there was no there was no room for snobbiness. Yeah, all of it was amazing. Yeah. It had not got to the point where you could go, oh no, that was a bit pony. <laughs> that you know that was all right. It was like no, it was all good. So even now, what we'd say is a bad mix or something that didn't work. Mm. Actually, that I I have no idea at what point that came on the radar of being able to even be dissatisfied with something yeah. in terms of like oh i won't put that with that or yeah. you know there were none of that it's quite in a, in a i guess in a naive way as well really because there were like really good mixes now in hindsight when i look when i listen back to mm-hmm. those tapes it'd be like really good mixes really good creative mixes that work and then really bonkers mixes that you yeah. just now you'd be just like oh my god there's no way i'd do that yeah but at the time it it didn't matter so because there'd be like such good music but such a broad spectrum of music that kind of that was the thing about the hacienda i guess now you can listen back and go well that's not a this record or that record mm. but at the time it was it was just all house yeah you know so there'd be like tempos would drop for example the very first time i went i remember keep on moving salt of soul being the last record but i didn't know who salt of soul were yeah i'd never heard of salt of soul so they didn't have any track you know it wasn't long it was Probably a week later, I bought that album, Club mm. Classics, which became the soundtrack to 89. And then off the back of that, you know, you had Back to Life and all that. That yeah. obviously became huge. But at this point, they were in the charts. I didn't know they were. But I remember just like, you know, from all this crazy acid house to like last tune, like yeah. really slow. You know, they, they do that a lot in there. They play all kinds of tempos up and down, but it really didn't matter. If anything, it was it was great to just have a out of nowhere you've got a really slow ace record and then the next thing's another nutty belgian track or something you know yeah we're off again just that mixture i think like like you said yeah even i i never had the opportunity to go is it 
kind of just before my era um but you listen to tapes and things like that and it is surprising like tapes from like 89 90 or whatever it's surprising the breadth of stuff that's being played there is like all this class what we deem as kind of classic house now but there's a lot of you know there's r&b they drop it down playing old school hip-hop yeah, you know and loads and, of hip-hop in yeah there, and hip yeah. house and all this yeah, kind of yeah. stuff and it's a real kind of mixture it's just like okay well we get all these records we just chuck it together we like it uh, you know have some of that whereas i think it's kind of these days and we'll kind of move us talk about like where the current scene is now i think it's just all like one flavor all night yeah, sometimes yeah, and that yeah. can be like you want to for me I, I love that mixture that you get and you know it might be a bonkers mix or change the vibe or whatever if it works in the context of that night then it's great yeah i mean i'm personally for me i'm uh, i'm i feel really really blessed to be able to um to have witnessed to, to have witnessed that but also to have been because even before the hacienda right so i'm i i remember clubs before we had house clubs mm-hmm. so it was just you got a dj and we, and this was a good night out yeah like, we're not like oh that was pony you know it's like this this was a good night a good night out so you go to a club you got your dj playing he's on the mic all night talking in and out of records you know everything he's playing is from the top 40 at that point a few classics and then it's funny. I was thinking about this earlier on today because I was thinking, oh, I wonder what we're going to speak about and stuff. And and I was just kind of just reflecting. I was like, wow. I remember like you know, it'd be standard for a nightclub. It'd be like we'd take the Mickey, call it the erection section, and it's mm-hmm. like, all right, erection section. Uh, last three records are going to be smooch records, and you got a, you know, now's your time to kind of sober up a little bit and grab some girl that's on her own and have a dance and get off with her. Do you know what I mean? That's that was that that was that culture, and then. So to be able to get to witness it and then, you know, be at the Hacienda and see clubs that just play that music all night, but still be able to program things in that way and, you know, and take some dips and turns. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that I witnessed that because I still, when I've got the balls, (laughs) I I still try and do that in places. I'll I'll play a sound effect or an acapella or something that will allow me to get from one place to another if the tempos are different. So I'm glad that I got to, uh, to witness that as well. But I think, for me, I've I've always had good residence as well as well. So that's been a good way of being able to, you know, may, maybe not in one do it all in one set. But it's like if you're playing a warm up or something, yeah. or the last set, or the middle set, you get to do different things. Yeah. So you've you're at the hacienda. It's blown your mind. You you point at the DJ booth. Did you walk out and be like, "That's what I want to do"? Yeah. Um. I probably. But I didn't realise I was going to do it, obviously, and um, I didn't. I didn't know anybody else that had decks at that point, mm-hmm. uh, so that it wasn't quite common. Yeah, you know how that was going to happen. It wasn't so much the first visit, you know, maybe the second or. I mean, I was I was totally intrigued by it, but maybe the second or third visit when I realised what what everybody else was getting up to in there. Yeah, and I kind of experienced it from that angle, and then I was like, ah, right, okay, I want to be that guy then. Yeah. I want to be the guy who's controlling this club yeah. and deciding who feels what and when <laughs> based on what they're playing and when they play it and how they play it. I was like, I want to be that guy. So that's, it kind of came from there. So tell me about when you when you took the plunge and bought some decks and it was like, okay, this is someone going to do this. I bought my decks at the end of 1990. Mm. Um, I bought them off Sasha, actually. We'd be, you know, he, yeah. we, me and him became friends. He lived around the corner from me and a friend of mine... I'm still good friends with a guy called Tony Annan. He used to run a night in Leeds called Up Your Ronson, mm-hmm. but before which I used to play at. But before back in '89, Tony was was one of the 
first guys, if not the first guy, to start doing like one-off parties mm-hmm. and, um, and and bringing in DJs. So he kind of broke Sasha. You know, no, no one in Leeds knew who Sasha was until Tony brought him from Manchester yeah. to Leeds. Yeah. And at this point, Sasha was wasn't really big in Manchester either. You know, he's still here. So anyway, we threw that kind of connection and yeah. just cracking on and stuff. When it when it'd be over, we became mates, and then I ended up moving there, and then to Manchester, and then the girl that I was going out with was also friends with him, uh, and I was also really good friends with Marie, the girl he was seeing. So we, yeah, we were all matey. He came up there, he had some decks to sell. He was going to buy some new ones. So I was like, I'll buy, it. I'll buy them off you then. So I bought them off him, and also I used to live with a guy in Manchester called Cass. Uh, I was I was totally in the right place at the right time, right? So he, I'd already kind of made myself known to Mike Pickering and Graham Park at the Hacienda, just through knocking on the DJ box door and going, what's this, what's this? And have you got a mixtape? And, you know, just pestering them every week um, from the age of 18. But, mm. you know, fast forward a couple of years, but when I'm like 20, I'm now living with the guy that was their driver. Right. He was Mike's driver, so he used to drive Mike on a Friday and drive Graham on a Saturday. Yeah. So on a Friday, Mike Pickering had always come to my flat first to get cast and then we'd go to the Hacienda together every every Friday for a couple of years without fail they'd come back to my flat and at this time there was also like Rob Gretton who was like mm-hmm. New Order's manager and who, who bought the club he'd be coming back to my flat and people like Bernard and uh, from New Order and stuff yeah. like that but just young and naive it's like meant nothing to me it really is I say it's still done. I don't. I mean, it's nice, but you know, it, it was no big deal for yeah. me. They want a big deal. I was fully aware of New Order and all that kind of thing, and uh, I didn't really know about Rob because I didn't really know the history of the club. I knew who, who he was, but he, the point is, he, so I had all these really you know, influential and creative people passing through my flat every um, <laughs> every weekend, and I had my deck set up in the corner, mm. and I'm just finding my way. So every time they'd come back to my flat. So the club would finish at two. We'd probably get out of there and get home to my flat for maybe three, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I'd be like, you know, we'd have a little party and I'd be DJing. So I'd be like, right, it's my turn now to kind of <laughs> showcase my my terrible skills. So I used to do that, and then on a Friday, uh, that was on a Friday. On a Saturday, Graham had come back, mm-hmm. so it'd be he used to normally he'd always have record industry bods with him, people A and R people and stuff like that for. Simon Gavin and uh, Kevin Dawson and people like that from record companies. So they'd always be back. They'd always be buttering me up, giving me promos and nasty tits and stuff like that because they're in my flat, so I didn't you know, <laughs> feel, kind of feel obliged. Um, but like I said, there was no... I didn't really know any DJs at the time. Mm. So when the first opportunity, I guess, came for a slot at the Hacienda, I guess I was the, the likely candidate for a mm. standing, really. Yeah. Like, oh, that's Buckley. Yeah. You know, because the first time... I, the, I was thinking about this. I think I played once, at, uh, you know, they do um, a thing called In the City once mm-hmm. a year that Tony Wilson set up. It's like Manchester's version of the Miami Winter Conference, I guess, where, you know, the city gets taken over from live bands and labels and showcasing this and that. And um, Deconstruction did a, a night at the Hacienda, like a Thursday night, mm-hmm. and uh, K-Class and uh, some other artists on Deconstruction played there. But the guy that was running it, Kevin Dawson, uh, yeah, he asked me to play because he'd, from previous visits to my flat through Mike Pickering, it was like, oh, he's, you know. So that was that was the first gig. Mm. And then, which wasn't really for the RC, and it was an outside thing, but I, I played there in, upstairs in the main room. And then Tom Wainwright, I used to warm up for Graham 
he went on holiday and Graham for two weeks. Yeah. And Graham rang me up once and, and he was just like, Do you wanna do you wanna stand in for Tom? I was like, Oh, oh my god. Yeah, I was like, Do I? <laughs> so this was like Pete this was like I don't know, maybe maybe ninety one, nine yeah, ninety one I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Really good time for the Hacienda, and like because Graham used to do when I first started going to the Hacienda, Graham and Mike used to play together, nude mm. on a Friday back to back, and then it closed for a bit with all the trouble and stuff at the end of ninety, and then opened up again. And when it opened, it changed. It was Mike stayed Fridays, Graham had the Saturday to himself, and the Saturday became like the it was a little more of a shopping crowd and that, but the Saturday you know was huge, club was packed, so I caught it. And they didn't do guests really. Loads mm. of people claim to have played and that they played the toilet or they played downstairs. But it's like the Hacienda had Mike Fricker and Graham Park. They were they were the residents and some people came and played for outside promoters and stuff. Really, yeah. do you know what I mean? So it wasn't really happening. Um, it was it was more of a residence club. So to to get that opportunity to play there. Uh, was was amazing. So that was that was kind of the first time I played there. Did Did you think I've arrived now? This is it. And can you remember anything you played? Yeah, I can actually. Yeah, yeah, I can remember a few things that I played. I remember I remember being really nervous and self conscious when Graham came in the booth, mm. like he's about to take over. I'm like shaking and just like oh, don't, you know, nervous of the mix. Am I going to drop a beat? I'd certainly got to grips with it by that point. But yeah, I was nervous as hell, and I don't think I thought at that time that I made it. I don't know if I ever thought that early. Yeah, I remember playing, I've got it down there actually. I remember playing, there's a track by DJ's Rule called Get Into The Music. I remember playing the B-side of that, which is called That's It. Mm. And I remember playing a track by Jamie Principal called Let's Get Intimate with some E-Smooth mixes and I kind of just played like a dub. Uh, the good thing about the Hacienda was like the art of warming up. You know, the Hacienda was warm up. You mm. know, it's like either Mike and Graham warmed up for themselves and they, the warm-ups were, I don't know if I'd say just as good, but the warm-ups were great. I used to love listening to the warm-ups. Yeah. They were, you know, there was nothing boring about the warm-ups. It's no. just a different, you know, a different yeah. kind of... I, lo- I love having that warm-up wash-over. Yeah. You get into a club kind of kind of early, in inverted commas, but just to kind of prepare you for yeah, what's going to come. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. I, love, I love playing warm-ups as yeah. well. Warm-ups are great, especially if you've got a long set. You can't go wrong, or you shouldn't go wrong from a warm-up. <laughs> that, you, you shouldn't do really because you're, you're not taking over from anyone. You're not like, oh, people have got locked into a certain kind of vibe of someone else, and now you've come and messed around with it, and it takes them half an hour to get them back on your side. Or, it's none of that. Yeah. It's like, this is where we're starting, this is where we're going. So each president comes in and kind of, they're kind of either from the start or over time, they, they kind of get on your way. So it's just... It's one of those things that really just picks momentum from from the moment people are coming in. Yeah. So yeah. you get to that point where you go, right? There's enough people on the floor now. I'm going to flip it. Yeah. <laughs> or, right? Okay. I've only got an, I've only got 40 minutes left before the guest takes over. I'll start. Start picking you know, start it up. Show, showcasing my skills. A little <laughs> bit. But uh, certainly in the Hacienda, there was definitely no there was no sign of like try to take the glory. Mm. You d- it was it was like an unspoken thing. But it was totally respected. It was like, no, you went there and warmed up. Yeah. And that's it. You know, you, you warmed up. You didn't play. You, 
You didn't go in there playing hits. It wasn't about that. Not if you wanted to warm up there again. No, at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Was there ever any moments where, um, where obviously there were like live acts, a lot of live acts that played there, like Inner City Tensity, yeah, like yeah. those kind of guys. And, you know, a lot of people have said that they played there, but there were some kind of people that would pass through. Were you ever kind of starstruck in any way? Was there ever any... Absolutely never. Yeah. If you wanted to call it starstruck, the only, the only time... And it wasn't, it wasn't with the Hacienda, it was with uh, Howard Marks. Me and Howard became really good mates. He moved to Leeds, really, really good friends. And he was good friends with Dave Beer mm-hmm. from Back to Basics, where obviously I was resident. And uh, so a friend of mine, Billy Idol, who used to live with Howard, and I'd not seen Billy for a few years, and he got in touch with me, and he was like, oh, I'm in Leeds. And it was when Howard was doing his first ever Mr. Nice tour off yep. the first book. He's like, I'm in Leeds without... And I used to watch this documentary on Howard Marks whilst he was still in prison. So he only became the figure that he was when he got out of prison. Yeah. Obviously, his history is, you know, UK's most wanted number one and all that. But that was in the 70s. People didn't know about that, really. And we used to watch this documentary that had been made about him, about the way he was arrested and, you know, what a deviant he was and all this kind of thing. And now he had the police fooled. And uh, so me and my mates used to just sit and get in stone watching it. And we thought he was ace when we were like... 17, 18, and then years later, I mean, he's, he's in Leeds. So anyway, I went and met him and we had some food and uh, he invited me along to his talk that night in Bradford. So I went to his hotel room and uh, he gave me a bit of hash. He was like, there you go, boy. And I was like, <laughs> started telling me like how, how good this hash is. And I'm like, oh, because that was his thing. He was never into mm. weed. Mm-hmm. So I was like, so he gives me this big chunk. And then he was like, do you like a little light? <laughs> a little light? <laughs> So he starts chopping them out on his, in his hotel room. And I had to stop him and I went, I went, you know what? I said, I just got to say something. I said, this is really surreal. I said, never get starstruck. I said, but I'm, I'm in a room with like, with Howard Marks, who's like the world's biggest drug dealers. You just give me some hash and you're racking me a line out. I'm like, I'm, I'm pretty like stopped in my tracks at the minute. But, um, which is totally separate. I just went off on one with that. But other than that, <laughs> Absolutely not, no. 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 I had a, f- I had a funny... Uh, so I played at the um, at the ICA on the Mall. Mm-hmm. This was actually one of the first... Well, I say one of the first. I, I, I don't know. But it's early doors. I did a Hacienda tour. I think it's the only time I've ever been to the ICA. I was with Mike Pickering and I can't remember who else was playing. I think Tom Wainwright. A couple of other DJs. So it was like... It was a Hacienda night, but there was also like this art exhibition going on and there was like it was packed with all these celebs and like... Fergal Sharkey and all, all these kind of people. And Martin Fry, who's the lead singer of ABC, you know, The Look mm-hmm. of Love. Yeah. Right? So, so him and Mike Pickering go back. They grew up together, I think, both from Altrincham or something like that. And um, they're old friends. So we're, we're, we're in the mall, and uh, not the mall, we're, we're in the ICA on the mall. I can't remember who, who played first, but we were trying to find somewhere to go to the toilet to go and have a nose up. And we're like, I can't find anywhere. It's packed in here. It's like, and we were with Paul Hurd, who was Mike's partner in M People. Mm-hmm. So Paul said, oh, he goes, I don't live too far from here. Well, why don't we just jump in the car, go to our house, do what we need to do and, and come back. So I was like, oh, all right. So there's me, Paul Hurd, Mike Pickering and uh, Martin Fry from ABC. So I'm thinking, I can't wait to tell my brother this, that, I'm, that, I, that I've been having a little carry on with Martin Fry. And I was like, I'm, my brother bought me the a, a ABC album, Lexicon of Love, for, mm. for, for like my 13th Christ, Christmas when I was like 13. I was like, this is, this is off the chain. So we go to Paul's house, do what we needed to do, 
jump back in the car and we go back. But we've all got these ICA stickers on, right? Like, so we'd kind of we'd come out of a side door because it was just packed, yeah, like chaos. And uh, so as we're walking back in, this this doorman, this big black guy stood there. He's good. You know, can't come in. Can't, and we're like, we're like ICA, mate. You know, showing his coat, opening his coats. ICA, ICA. And uh, Martin Fry didn't have one on him. <laughs> And he's a big unit as well. He's like, I don't know, six foot four or something. This dude. And he, he didn't mean to be aggressive, but he's a bit steaming as well. And uh, so Dorman's like, yeah, come in, yeah, come in, yeah, yeah. And then Martin went like that and kind of kind of slapped, patted his face and slapped his face. But as he did it, he went, Martin Fry, ABC. And went like that. And this Dorman just went, boom, oh. punched him. Like, I knocked him and I was just like, oh my God, my brother's really not going to believe this now. Do you know what I mean? It was like, as if that's just happened. As if, I, you know, I was like, if someone had told me when I was 13, listening to Lexic and Love, <laughs> eight years later, I'm going to be doing all that and watching him get knocked out whilst I'm out with him. I was just like, you're joking, aren't How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, yeah, so we've talked about the Hacienda. How long were you resident there for? So I played for Graham warming up for Tom in 91, mm. 91, 92. And then I must have played again because I played the 11th birthday with like Morales and Knuckles and uh, Tony Humphreys and yeah. all this. And the, there was about 12 of us that played and everyone that played had played the club that year. So that was kind of the idea behind the lineup. Okay. Yeah. was like every, and maybe a couple of the Americans were kind of like the icing on the cake who hadn't played. So that that, that just shows you how many guests played the club. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's yeah. like not many at all. So I must have already played there. Um, 
that year to to get that booking but what happened was on that on that so that was also my 22nd birthday because as i told you earlier we share the same birthday me and the hacienda yeah. so the 11th birthday which i played on was also my 22nd birthday that was also the night that mike pickering left and when he left i kind of so there was a guy called russell who used to warm up for mike mm -hmm. um so when Mike left, it was kind of Russ kind of moved into Mike's spot and I kind of moved into Russ's spot. Yeah. So I was kind of doing the, it's kind of just this unspoken thing. It's just yeah. respect. It's like, yeah. I'm not going to step in there and be playing the last set, you know, what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> just like that. Um, so then that happened and that lasted for a few weeks while the club were trying to work out what to do because Mike left randomly. The, he, he left because there was some trouble that night on the birthday and someone mm. had thrown a bottle at Morales or something and at the same time somebody had done something to Mike and he'd been there for years so I know he was starting end people and all that yeah. and he was just like Do you know what I'm, I'm over it yeah. and, uh, and he left kind of thing so there was a time when I was yeah so we kind of stepped in so the club was still open while they were working it out and then I got told that me and Russ that like both of us it was like oh you know we're going to have to let you go um, and like Alistair Whitehead and Tim Lennox stepped in mm. but it was just when Alistair was just like just before he became really big, but he was already like well, well respected. But I don't know if it was, he's probably going to hate me for saying this, but, I, I, but, the, but the weird thing is they had me back the next week, but they, but, but they didn't, uh, Russ didn't come back. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, not, maybe not the next week, but we, we both got, let's not say sacked, but we both got let go. Mm. You know, I remember getting um, like Paul Mason, who was the manager of the club. I remember like, I, I have to go meet Paul Mason. I'm like, Oh, right. Ooh, big time now. I'm going to meet Paul Mace and I'm like, check this out. I'm like thinking, what's he going to offer me? And he, he sacks me. <laughs> I was like, I was nearly in tears. I was like, well, that was short lived. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. But like I said, very quickly, they asked me back. Um, mm. And then I was doing some Fridays and then Saturdays, you know, I'd played uh, downstairs in the Gay Traitor. Um, I don't know, the years actually, they, you, you was asking what year. So I think... I don't know, it's a bit sporadic, but probably till maybe, I'm guessing here, but maybe till 95, 96. Because yeah. I know the club closed in 97, and I moved back to Leeds, end of 96, beginning of 97. And I don't seem to have any real memory of the last year in Manchester and Hacienda. Mm. So I think, you know, where up until that point, I was yeah. like, you know, if I were gigging, I was a gig, and then in Hacienda. If I yeah. weren't gigging, I was just in Hacienda anyway. But I don't know in that last year. I, did, I know I did have a, a manager at that point and, and an agent and, and kind of was getting a lot of work. But I think I'd kind of, I think that, I think I was kind of over the Hacienda a little bit at that point. It, I mean, it had definitely changed and become, it well, It wasn't what I, what drew me to it. But now it had also become like home and with family there. Yeah. You know, where, yeah. You know, go there, do what you want. Yeah. You know, go, go in there and just spend all night in the lighting box. You know, we, me and my mate Jay, we used to, he's coming here on Friday actually, we're still really good mates with him. We'd Every week we'd be like, all we've done is sitting here all night, like watching it from over, you know, because the lighting box was right. The lighting box and the DJ box were the same, but it just had a little partition and a bit of glass. Okay. And the, the DJ booth was like a third of the size. The lighting box was like really long. The lighting box was like three times longer than 
than the DJ box kind of thing. Yeah. It was all part of it. It looked like a big hotel from Monopoly. That's what it always reminded me of. That. <laughs> it still felt rude. And, but we'd just sit in there, and, you know, and we could go in there and order drinks and yeah. <laughs> not pay yeah. for them and all that kind of thing. And every week we thought we were living the life getting Moe, which is now just like, oh my God, Moe, it's like the worst. It's like drinking sick, isn't it? You know, and we'd be like, the end of the night, we're like giving it the big game. It's like, oh, can we get, give us three bottles of champagne? And, be, and they never used to charge us. They'd be like, just take it and or replace it. Yeah. So we've got a Sainsbury's or something where you could get it for about 16 quid a bottle and just buy it and take it back. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I think we'd kind of, I was over it yeah at that point i mean so you'd been there you'd seen it go through from from as a punter from the very beginning to almost the very end obviously all the different genres of house music and everything how much it had changed over that time as well and how quickly things had changed yeah yeah was it you know were there any bits where every, everyone when they think about their clubbing days sometimes always like oh it's better in my day or whatever yeah. were there ever any eras where it's like oh, i much preferred it then or did it always think, yeah be always fun? 89 Mm. Always, always 89 for me whether that's just because that were kind of my my real first year into it but even still when I, I i'm not one for living in the past no matter what this might sound like certainly when i'm djing and that i'm not it might come through in other ways but i'm not just like playing old records yeah, not, yeah, yeah. you know i'm not in, into that but um like that section of tracks down there in the bottom right mm-hmm. they're all i see and if i pulled any of them out I, probably actually if we was to start pulling them out i bet none of them go past 93 <laughs> Right. Now I'm saying this, but like you, when I listen to them, it's like they still excite me. Them records, yeah, they still yeah. sound good. You don't yeah. have to know what they are. There was just so much good music in '89. One thing that I do that does amaze me is like it's a silly analogy, but you know, like the the Beatles were going like, and Beatles were only going like four or five years or something. Yeah. They did so many albums and so many looks and different styles in such a short space of time. For me, that's the end. It was like that. It's like 1990. It was completely different to 89. 89, all this amazing music being made. By the start of 19... Uh, don't get me wrong, throughout the music was amazing. Well, not all of it. But when it came to 1990, there was a period at the start of 1990 where tempos dropped right down mm. to like soul-to-soul style. You know, you had, uh, you know, Ghetto Heaven, and mm-hmm. uh, Family Standard, things yeah. like that. You know, and there was a, some great record, you know, Chimes, Heaven and stuff like that, but... You know, people like Morales and Knuckles and all that, they were all doing like these like 1510 BPM yeah. remixes. And that was really cool, kicking back with the Taxman devotion, all that kind of thing. So you've got all that bonkers stuff in eclectic stuff going on in, in 89 to so dropping it right down, smooth, groovy, Nelly Hooper Productions, all that kind of thing. So 1990 to then back up into, you know, cheeky, acidy stuff, you know what I mean? And then, I think the only, the, what what really doesn't stand up for me is the whole sound of the mid-90s. Well, some of it's so fast as well, you listen to it I was it just going to yeah. say, I did a, a mix CD for Love To Be in Sheffield, which I was also a resident at. I, I did a fortnightly residency there in about the mid-90s, about 95. But it was a big deal for me. It was like still before Days of Digital and that. Mm. Right? So it's like, oh, you can go in HMV and buy this. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, I've made it. I've got, a, I've, I, there's actually a display in HMV in Leeds just of this CD. I'm walking in, I'm like, didn't have a camera on my phone back then to take a photo of it. I probably didn't even have a phone then. And I found the Love To Be CD. So I was like, I'll play it to my partner. And I stuck it on. I was like, oh my God, but luckily on a CDJ, I can now, <laughs> I can slow it down. I'm like, I'm like, as if I started at 1.30 BPM on this, you know, and ended up about 1.36. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, these tracks weren't made at that speed. Why am nice. I playing them like that? Yeah, it's nuts how it has ebbed and flowed and it's really kind of been rolled back like mm. recently. So you've, 
been a regular DJ at the Hacienda. Um, what what kind of came next? Didn't you play the first Renaissance? Yeah, I played the first set, the first ever Renaissance. I mean, Jeff Oaks, who did Renaissance, was yeah. my mate. That's how I got on board. He was yeah. like, I'm doing this night. And he was also, mate. we were all mates, me, him and Sasha. And we used to go and see Sasha play Shelley's on a Friday. Jeff lived in Stoke. Shelley's is in Stoke. We'd go mm. back to Jeff's afterwards with Sasha, you know, crack on all weekend. Sasha had cancelled his Saturday gig. <laughs> And just stay there in Stoke Park and playing in the bedroom with us, all going back to back. And then Jeff, Jeff came up with the idea that he was going to do do Renaissance. Mm. I don't think any of us really thought about like how big it'd be. Or yeah. it's just great, great timing. It was yeah. like clubs were still finishing at two. It weren't happening. An all night, a club all night that starts at midnight and goes on till six in the morning or something. And you got Sasha as a resident because he was like busy constant, like mainly just in the UK, wasn't yeah. it? up and down like every single place you could think of. You know, it's like everyone wanted Sasha on, so it's like everything just kind of fell into place. So yeah, they were they were a good six months there, and then they started getting big, too big, and they kind of nudged me out, made their excuses. <laughs> I've been playing there about six months, and this was probably like my best set. Mm. I remember like where it was just one of those where everything was just perfect, and I was playing before Ten City, and Ten City is still to this day best PA I've ever seen. Yeah. Right? And uh, I smoked a spliff in the DJ booth. Which I did every week anyway, yeah. and then um, whilst Ten City were playing, because I'm in the I'm in the booth, I'm in the joint, and the owners there never said anything at the time. And the following week, when I went back, the doorman stopped me. He was like, "No, you can't come in, mate." I'm like, "I'm DJing." He was like, "No, you're not allowed in." I was like, "What for?" I said, "Smoking a joint here last week." I was like, "What? Really?" So that was that. That was that. That, yeah. that ended. That ended uh, Renaissance. <laughs> Funny thing is, though, Jeff Oaks. So that was in '92. Mm. Ten years later. New Year's Day. Well, actually, it was in November or something like that of 2011. I get a phone call, and I can't tell you what he said, but it was something that he would have said back in the day, and I knew straight away who it was, and it was Jeff. I just burst out laughing. And uh, he was like, how are you, mate? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm fucking great. I'm great. I'm like, what, what do you want? I was like, it's great to hear from you. And he went, yeah, he said, I'm doing a party on New Year's Day at the warehouse in Leeds with, like, Jesse Rose and... Derek Carter, mm. uh, and I released on Jesse's label, and Derek Carter's one of my favourite DJs. And yeah. I was like, yeah, of course I'll do it, of course I'll do it. So yeah, came full circle 10 years later, he booked me again, you know. <laughs> and I, I the funny, oh, oh no, no, I was gonna, that's, that's another story, but let's just say, yeah, he, he booked me 10 years later, and that was that. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell me that one when we turned yeah, the bikes yeah. off. Well, no, what I was going to say was, but I actually got it wrong, what I was going to say was, he booked me, and then ended up in a pickle, but it wasn't that at all. It was Dave Beer that ended up in the pickle, right? <laughs> so I'd played at Basics on New Year's Eve, mm. 2011, going into 2012. So the next day, I'm playing the warehouse for Jeff, obviously still up from New Year's Eve and that, like spangled. And uh, Dave Beer comes along to meet us there, and we, we were in the back room. Don't know who was playing. I don't, it's not for me to say, so I can't, I can't say what he'd been indulging in. But it definitely had a little go on something without telling us and kind of it kicked in while we were in this and he were, all of a sudden he was in a coma and we're like, oh, what is going on here? And he's like, we're like, Jeff, Jeff's like, fuck this, it's, like, it's my party, I can't get involved in this. I'm like, I'm, I'm, it's not to do with me either. So we're like, we had to get beer and getting carried out and stuff. So yeah, that's what happened there. Brilliant. <laughs> so not Jeff, he didn't get in a pickle actually. He just fucked me. <laughs> My other boss at the time got in a pickle. So. 
Um, so, I mean, yeah, we can come on to basic. I don't know where it kind of falls in the timeline. Yeah, if I started playing basics in like 2002, I think. Oh, okay, so I suppose uh, so it was there's a little... quite a long, quite a long time. So I moved back to Leeds in um, moved back to Leeds in '97, mm. and uh, I started doing my own night at the Mint Club in Leeds in '99. Me and Graham Park, yeah, um, which was a crazy thing as well because like '89, I'm in the club. '99, his wife's managing me, and he's now doing his. Uh, up until that point, his residences had only ever been the garage in in Nottingham and the Hacienda. Now me and him are doing our own night, resident only, no guest DJ policy. Right, that was it. It was like just me and him every week. We did book a few mates in the end over the couple of years, but only to kind of cover for other stuff. We, mm. it, we, you know, we didn't book guests to come and play for the sake of having having guests on. So um, Dave was kind of, I'm sure, valid and let it happen anyway. The owner of the club, but. But uh, Dave was pretty instrumental in, in making that happen as well because Basics were there on a Saturday at this point. Mm. Me and Dave were already mates. We'd been mates since 91. So we'd already been mates 10 years. But with like Back to Basics was such a well-respected and like such a cream of the crop for such a long time. Certainly in its first... Well, it's not for me to say, you know, in what... But, you know, the first 10 years plus, they were, they were flying and their, their reputation and winning mm. awards for their artwork and their look and you know everyone wanted a piece of it so i never i never ever mentioned sabiro playing there because i was like i was like well he, he's my mate he, he, first off i was doing all right anyway yeah but if truth be told i'd have bit his hand off if he did you know i was like yeah of course i play, play there I'd, I'd love to play there you know there was time when they had the club on three floors and like they'd be having like fucking daft punk on one floor <laughs> and like uh, yeah just crazy like cream of the crop on like every level packing it out but i never asked him and he never mentioned it to me and we're just partying hang out together and talk shop about what he's doing around him but we never kind of joined it yeah and uh but he he kind of he spoke to because I, I told him about wanting to do the night at the mink club and he kind of helped make that happen and make us get that night there so anyway yeah so i stayed there as well as as well as kind of guesting and doing other little monthly residences here and there that i had i was at the mink club then the mink club closed uh, well, no, actually, it didn't close, but Basics left to move to a new club, and it was when they moved to the new club, which was Rehab, mm -hmm. uh, that I got on board. Yeah. And I ended up playing, I ended up being resident for 11 years for yeah. them after wow. that. Yeah, and just in terms of thinking about being a resident somewhere, like, how important do you think those kind of things are? I mean, we touched on kind of warm-up and stuff like that in terms absolutely. of absolutely. developing a sound of a, of a night. and absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, for me personally, I think so important. I think, yeah, so important. And lucky that I always had them for years. You know, I never really didn't have, a, as well as all the different little trendy things that came and went in between. Mm. You know, I always had some really good solid residencies from, from day one. And even though I started playing basics in 2003, yeah, I'd already been DJing 12 years then. And I listen to my old mixes and I think they're great from then, you know, they're all vinyl, you know, my mixing scene, this style of music, I like what I played, I never played any, too many turkeys, I, you know, I think it was all all pretty good, but I really came into me on, I think, music, musically and as a DJ when I started playing at Basics, mm -hmm. you know, it went from, I remember Dave Beer saying to me, he was like, I, he was like, you've got a fan club because we've never had, we've never had a resident yet where in, in the history of the club where people are coming to see 
the resident and yeah. more importantly you and he was like your sounds the sound of the club and your and i think you know it's, I, I sound up it now i never said it at the time but i think for the time that kind of was it i was flying flying the flag i mean all the rest of the residents not taking anything away they're all amazing they are good amazing there's definitely a time where i was kind of just like on fire everyone was behind me and and i was really kind of just being able to what I saw as underground and yeah. just cutting edge. Yeah. Uh, just me, basically, what I wanted to be doing. I think I definitely chopped and changed a lot. Not like worlds apart, but just like, you know, it's like when you're into music, you're into so much music and, you you know, you're taking on all this music to just spit it out in two hours. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't even... You, you don't even get started yeah so uh, i love the fact of residences i've been like depends what mood i'm in i've been like going, going through a tough time with my girlfriend it's like come back and just play nasty and don't realize you know i'm pissed off I and mean, other times where it's all going good and you know you know you, you know it's all it's all love and light and that yeah days, <laughs> you know what i mean but um yeah and just be like oh i'm into this sound this week um you know it's all stuff that you've got but yeah. it's really hard to give it all all your attention all the time so it's just ends up focusing in little pockets. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, but I think residencies, I mean, just residencies are massively important. I'd, I'd be quite happy with a residency. In fact, when I was resident at Basics, you know, you'd go and play other clubs and it just, you know, it wouldn't come close. Even like, even like when I was resident for We Love Sundays and I was playing the terrace, mm. even like, like the first, first, I don't know, who, first guest slot or first gig as, as resident for We Love. But it was a wicked lineup with like, I think like Jeff Mills and Cassius and Danny Owls and Leo and Bushwacker and all and and then me, and then me at the end. I was like, as if I, I got the last set after Leo and Bushwacker closing the terrace from four till four till six thirty as the sun came up, and I was just like, wow. I was like, as if this is happening. And that was amazing. But after that, it was just hard work. It didn't come close. Do you know what I mean? It's like, no disrespect to Love Space. I'm so grateful for it. But it's like, you know, me and Paul Wolford were both, at the time, we were both resident for Basics and we were both res both resident for Space. And we'd be like, you know, pulling off these really long mixes and rocking it at Basics with all this nutty shit. And then you, you know, you go to Space. And it's like, you can't do that. You can do bits of that. Yeah. But it's like, they're not going to get... So it's kind of like this bit of sweet. It's kind of not really what you've thought. You know, you couldn't... My thing is, if you've got a regular crowd, residences are important as a DJ for you as a DJ, but they're also important, massively important to shaping a club. Mm -hmm. So when you've got a club that regulars come to, do you shape? Do you help shape that sound of the club? Do you, you know, the, the the guest DJs that come in and pass through every week are just by the by. Yeah. No, actually, not not by the <laughs> by. But I mean, I know a lot of the time it, I mean, we had amazing guests at Basics, but I know a lot of the regulars were just waiting for any one of the residents because they. They know that they know the club and that yeah. they, they know what they're going to get there. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Sometimes you guess they hit and miss. And, mm -hmm. Or sometimes you guess they're like, because they're guesting more rather than having a residency. They're coming and playing stuff. And we had a purist crowd, you know what <laughs> I mean? And they're like, no, fuck that. We're not having this, mate. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so they're pretty ruthless, actually. They, yeah. they, knew their, they knew their tunes, you know what mm. I mean? I've seen Pete's song in, uh, what documentary is it? Oh, it was a thing that was on the on the news a few years ago, but he was talking about the few times that he played at Basics and he did an essential selection and that. And obviously he knows Dev uh, beer well and you know fully aware of Basics. But he was like, he said whenever he got us up there, he just felt like he were intruding. You know, what I, mean? you know I think I think that that were like that for a lot of people because they were like, you know, you know, 
you're not on it, on it, you're not pulling the wool over no one's eyes there, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so what was, um, you know, we've mentioned basics, we mentioned We Love Sundays at Space, and you said you, you lived in Ibiza for a number of years. Yeah. Was there, when you were over there having that residency at Space, was there a, a sense of... I want to. I want to live here and live this life. Or did that? I think I've. I I had that the very first time I went to Ibiza. Yeah, I really did. Um, when I was like, so I was nineteen the first time I went to Ibiza, nineteen ninety. No outside promoters there because I remember being at the Cafe del Mar. So this is before. This is before Mambo's has opened, and it's Alfredo playing. Didn't know who Alfredo was either. Uh, and even the Cafe del Mar, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. It was probably about 40 people out there yeah. outside, 40, 60 people. Like, that's it. And he was playing uh, Roy Ayers, Everybody Loves the Sunshine, mm. uh, as on a sunset. And I know that track anyway, but uh, I remember being smoking some really nice hash as well. But it was the, the, the Ibiza spirit. And I remember just thinking, I've, I've used the word loads of times before, but I, I remember just thinking like, so this is chilling out. I remember having that moment. Oh, on my own. I was just kind of like, first time I've ever left England. First time I ever got on a plane was to Ibiza. You know, I was actually going to meet Jeff Oaks, who we spoke about earlier from yeah. the Renaissance. And he gave me a, I had a cigarette box, a Marlboro Light cigarette box. It had a map drawn on it, how to get out of the airport and find the villa. Because this was like, you know, I went there with probably 100 quid or something and stayed there for the whole summer. And I, had a, I remember having a head bag, sports bag, and a few pairs of socks and shorts and... Not, not much clothes. I didn't, uh, at 19, I didn't have many possessions anyway. <laughs> they were probably all there in that bag. And the funny thing is, when I came back, I had none of them. Uh, but that's another story in itself. But I had, to, I had to, we got chased on the way to the airport, me and Jeff. had to throw our bags so we could run. I was like too knackered. I'm like, I can't run, I can't run. It's like, throw them. Ah, fucking hell, it's all I've got. We're on the way to the airport to go home after four months and the people, this is all I've got. All I, when I landed in London, all they had was, uh, was what I was wearing. But, um, so he had this, so it was this map and it was like basically come out and no mobile phones and that. Then. Yeah. So like come out of the airport, turn right, roundabout, windmill, yeah. turn left, yeah. double back on yourself, villa on your right, pretty simple, straightforward. And uh, yeah, there there it was. So um, I kind of always knew that I was going to live there. Just took a long time. And I, bet I made the decision to move there 10 years ago because I remember it was uh, George Evelyn, who's uh, Nightmares on Wax. Yeah. He's a friend of mine, he's from Leeds. Yeah, I remember he moved out there. And then it was he's a year older than me, and it was his 40th birthday. Went out to celebrate his birthday and to DJ at his party that he had in, in April, just before the summer kicked in. And the girl that I was with at the time, I remember we day and we was like, should we move here? Should we sell the house and move, move here? And it was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. So we made that decision. It took about two years for actually me and her to fall out and realise that that wasn't going to happen, and then I moved there. And I was like, all <laughs> oh, right, I was like, okay, so... We were actually never going to move here together because that wasn't part of the plan. But and yeah, this is so. Uh, so yeah, so then I moved there eventually. Yeah, and you were working out there as well. Yeah, I mean, basically, I went travelling for a bit. I left. I left basics. Mm. I left my residency at basics and kind of uh, <laughs> sold my house and put all my possessions in storage. And this was at the end of two thousand and thirteen. And I was just kind of like, I don't know what I want to do. I've never done anything other than DJing. I don't know where my life's going. A lot of things have changed. Mm. I've just left basics of 11 years. I've just left my partner of, uh, of 11 years. A few friendships with people that I've had for a long time. I've, I was just, I've, I've ended. I just felt really disillusioned and, and just kind of like, I don't know what I want, but I know what I don't want, and it's this. And I, I knew I was going to go to India. 
first. That was kind of on the radar. So I went to India first and then kind of passed through Mexico, lived in Costa Rica for about seven months, went to Peru, did ayahuasca wow. and all that, yeah. went and stayed in the Amazon a couple of weeks with a shaman, which was really cool. And like all these completely different life-changing experiences. And then like a couple of years and I was like, right now, what do you want to do while you've... So, because this was also the first time I'd never not DJed. Mm. I didn't make a decision not to DJ. I yeah. just made a decision to change some things in my life. And like all of a sudden I'm like, well, I'm living in Costa Rica. I'm not here DJing. I'm not here socializing in the city life or... or there wasn't even a city. It was like a shanty town where I was yeah. living. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I didn't know what I was there, what I was doing. But um, <laughs> well, no. so I mean, during that those travels as well, you said you went DJing. Were you oh, were you absorbing saying. music from these local scenes? That you, no, well, you I didn't maybe... really experience any scenes. I mean, I lived in the jungle in yeah. Costa Rica <laughs> with two people, but we had an amazing home in the jungle. We weren't roughing it or camping. Yeah, we had this home that that had been built for the Americans when they were using it for the banana plantation. But the whole thing was kind of just like totally unplugged from the system and everything else. And for the first time ever in my life, at like 42 years old, I had no requirements, no mortgage to pay, no relationship to be in, nothing. It was like mm. blank canvas, total blank canvas. Yeah. Which is why I went off to Peru and did all that as well. Yeah. It was kind of like, all right, well, let's see who we are. Yeah. So whenever I tried to listen to music, I couldn't even listen to it. I couldn't even. I was like, it just felt alien. Unless yeah. it was really chilled. Yeah. But that actually became really good grounding for when I finally got to Ibiza. Because I got to Ibiza in 2014. First 18 months or something, I'd been there. I didn't, people didn't even know I was there. I didn't even tell anyone I was there. I moved there in the winter. I want... Uh, I'd never even I'd never been to the island in the winter before, so I purposely moved in the winter because I'd also gone from like thriving off being in the thick of things to kind of actually being really un after the time of out. Mm. When I came back, I was like, I'm no good around people. Yeah, I'm not. I was like, I need to be in my own little bubble. I'm too fragile and sensitive, sensitive to to be around it. I was picking up everything. It was mental, but I had money in the bank and all that, so I didn't need to do anything either mm. unless I actually wanted to. So. So that was the the only time it had, it had run into like the best part of a couple of years without DJing, and then when the gigs started coming in, mm. there were like all these laid back sun kissed gigs. I was like, oh, well, this is great because I've just been in Costa Rica listening to nothing but chill stuff for for the last year. Yeah, so um, yeah. when it comes to like getting back into music and obviously setting, I was thinking about this yesterday as well. It's like how I was playing some music last night. I've got like. The, amazing music over there i'm listening to some stuff and then i'm kind of like it's funny how some stuff doesn't even translate here mm -hmm. even to yeah. myself it's like in ibiza it's like this is perfect even to yourself about playing to someone it's funny how the spirit of a place i guess yeah can influence you and influence you in what you do musically and uh, yeah it's all which, about the which context, was great for it? waxy jam as well it's like totally wide open i'm playing latino and all kinds of shit yeah but being able to mix it as well because i once i'd got my head around um on the new CDJs, it's kind of like if you loop stuff, yeah. you can mix it like house. Yeah. Right. So I'm like, all right, because I, I like to let mixes run, like yeah. long mixes, but you can't let those tracks run. They're gonna they're gonna run all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can do it with a you know with a pitch, but it's you know you're all you're all over the shop. Yeah. But I'm like, all oh, right, okay, and bar loop at the start, bar mm -hmm. loop at the end, or wherever you're ready, and mix that for as long as you like till yeah. you till you bored of the mix and let it go, and it's like, oh wow. So that it it was like it was like learning to DJ again. Mm. Uh, but I'm really glad I had that opportunity to do it because it was great. It was like how cool is it to be able to play soul, funk, disco, reggae, oh. jazz, and 
and make it all work. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And, and just make it all work. Or even just play loops as well. Yeah. Play a really good percussion loop and put an acapella over it. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, just do stuff and, yeah. Yeah. Do stuff differently. I mean, I'm my I'm my own, um, what is it, biggest fan. Mm-hmm. Right? So all I listen to is me. There's so much different layers of stuff that I've done out there. But like that mix that, we, that I had on when you came in, mm. I was just like, so great that those things got recorded. You can't recreate those things. No. There's no thought. You're not playing to um, you're not necessarily playing to a crowd. You're setting a mood, uh, and if anything, you're doing the opposite. You play, yeah, you're playing to keep people at a certain pace, but not get them up and get them at it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, playing for like five and six hours. Yeah, there was a time where I was in Ibiza. Sometimes I'd be like doing five and six, five and six gigs uh, a week. Three or four of them would be like for Steve, you know. But it just fly by like six hours, bam, next day, six hours. It's a good way of learning your craft. Yeah. You know, that in fact, it's the only way, isn't it? You yeah. Know, it's like, yeah. I'd never be able to, not that I won't be able to, it just won't translate in the same way for me to stand in my living room and try and do that for six hours. Yeah. I could play music for six hours, but it's not the, the because the feeling's different and that, you know, and the setting's different. So the overall outcome is going to be different isn't it? yeah yeah completely and your um vinyl collection did you yeah, sell so it yeah i did yeah a lot of it most of it yeah so i remember reading about this in the press i think it made like the national press as well um, bonkers went viral didn't it it was, mm. it was absolutely crazy so i'd never ever thought about selling my records ever never thought of wood so uh, where were they, were they in, a in a lockup somewhere yeah basically when i, I moved out of my home in 2012 and a year later, I left England. So I put them in lockup. It was about 8,000 or something. I put them in lockup. And I moved out of my home, sold it, lived with a couple of mates while I was working out what I was going to do. And then went off traveling. And then, you know, so I'm backpacking. I've got no, I'm not a mm. DJ and I've got no call for, you know, if I had a mirror to cover that wall and that wall, to cover all that, all that, because it did in my house, so he's going to do it here. And more and the stairs and they're yeah. everywhere, right? So I'd never ever thought about selling them. And then I just read this. I, I sat at home and, it, and I was on Facebook and it was like, Seth Troxler buys that's the end of DJ's record collection of two and a half thousand records. And there's a DJ called Dave Aslam. <coughs> so I'm basically thinking, I my record collection is better than that. I'm four times as big as that. So without giving it a second thought, this is typical me, total impulsive, never thought about selling my records out of all these years. And then, so I just went, status, oh, just seen that Seth Troxler's bought Dave Aslam's record, seriously thinking about selling mine, serious offers only, and put up two photographs of when I were moving them. Yeah. Right? Not even knowing if I want to sell them or not. And it just went bonkers. Like, everyone shared it, everyone getting in touch. I had Matt Tolfrey, Eats Everything, Seth Troxler, loads of people get, uh, like, wanting to buy it. Yeah. Uh, Record shops, uh, record dealers. Uh, I had radio stations from America phoning (laughs) me, wanting to do interviews. I was in the NME. I was like, I'm in the fucking NME. You've never mentioned me once in all the years of playing them, and now I'm selling them. You want to write about me? I'm like, that's irony for you. Do you know, I'm getting all this press for fucking giving it up. When I spent years trying to get some press while I'm doing it, I'm like, thanks for nothing. All of you. Um, I was just kind of like, I didn't need the money as well at that point. So I was just kind of like, oh, do you know what? I'm kind of backed off yeah. a little bit. But I started to. Uh, not scare, scare me is not the right word, but I was definitely like overwhelmed by it all. And I was just a little bit, I was like, well, I need to work out what I want to do here. And um, there was one guy that I'd kind of kept in touch with. He'd heard of me and was kind of really keen in, keen on me. And then 
he was like, do you, do you know Bolton? And I was like, as if he's talking about Bolton outside Manchester, this French guy. I'm like, yeah, I know Bolton. And he's like, well, he's like, I'm there playing there in a couple of weeks. So I said, well, look, my, my lockup is is in Leeds. It's mm. like it's 50 minutes from there. So luckily I just swapped numbers with him and, and the guy who won the lockup. I didn't even leave Vibita to go and do it. So the guy went, had a look, sent me a picture on, on WhatsApp of him amongst all my records and started sending me messages going, oh, you know, Sounds of Blackness and oh, you got this, you got that. And we agreed on a price, 15 grand I yeah. agreed on. Yeah. Uh, which, but I can't, which really is nothing. I spent about a grand on Discogs in, in lockdown. <laughs> nothing. I've been buying my shit back, honestly, I have. Because I, I, I have, I'm not kidding. Because I kind of made the decision. I was like, I was like looking at this practical, right? But what I kept was kind of like, there's some cool albums and stuff down there. Mm. That, stuff that like, because a lot of the stuff was kind of like, just straight up DJ tackle, you know? Yeah. It's like every week for, I don't, I don't know, best part of 30 years or whatever. Well, no, actually, because the whole vinyl thing slowed down in it. In like the, you know, you couldn't really, they want, want really anything new to buy come the 2005 or something like that. Yeah. But certainly for what a good 15 years or something, you know, I've just been buying records like every week. Yeah. And shitloads. So a lot of it's of the time and just for then. Yeah. Right. But it's a great thing to have. It's a great tool extension to kind of have on your wall and look back and go. And it is part of history and all that kind of thing. But I was also going through these revelations within myself about attachments to things yeah. and all that. So I was kind of like, well, this is funny. This is serving double duty again. Kind of makes sense because it's the ultimate attachment mm. that actually is not really serving me because I was like, where can I, I can't, what can I do with this stuff? What, I've got to live in a world where I'm like, eventually I'm going to have this nice big home in Ibiza where there's place for that. And I also thought if I'm going to do it, I have to know that I can never... Pointless gonna, it's pointless me doing it if I'm going to sit there regretting it. Yeah. Right? And if I'm going to sit there thinking about it, then there's loads of scope to regret it. So you need to get in the right headspace about it. And then I was kind of like, and also, you know, if you ever do, you know, when you're in the position, if you, whatever you do want, you can get it back. And actually just have a much more refined yeah. uh, version of what you had. Yeah. Which is kind of what I'm doing. I bought loads of cool <laughs> shit like... Um, old disco 12s and stuff like that and stuff that uh, that's cool to like if you're not DJing just yeah. to listen to, just to a have. nice piece of vinyl yeah. nice album nice uh, compilation or something yeah. like that yeah you know. yeah. so uh, what we always do it's kind of time for the playlist at the end of the interview we always ask our guests to submit five tracks for the House Culture Perfect playlist on Spotify um, against five themes and you've been kind enough to kind of get back to me on on the choices i know we spoke before the mics came on in terms of you know there's no technically no floor filler that's always in your box or whatever but it's always good to have an idea of kind of what you know for you what's been a good track over the years so and we've already talked about the catalysts the bgs yes so they're staying alive so unless there's any other kind of experiences I think we've probably know, covered I've, it all I, on I, that. I told you all about yeah. that, my obsession with it, seeing yeah. it on the South Bank show. You know, that. yeah, I didn't leave anything out there. <laughs> that's why that's in there. I mean, the, the the choice is maybe. I don't know if the choice is is the favourite. Yeah, you know, I was looking at the album last night. I was like, I don't know. The, yeah. I'd, I'd have to say that album, but you, yeah, is, you know, it's it's a bit unfair to put it down to one track. But that's an obvious one. And once my ego had got over the oh god what if people think this isn't a cool tune and i'm like how cool do you think you are at six years old seven years old it really don't matter i was like all oh, right staying alive then 
Um, okay, and a floor filler, um, Doug yeah. Willis. Doug Willis, yeah. Get your is, own. Yeah, as I told you, uh, I found that I, I had one too because I don't, I don't really have like, oh yeah, guaranteed floor filler. Uh, and it's not an obvious because it's kind of a real funk workout as well. But um, but it's tried and tested. Yeah. I don't really get bored of it. There's not much stuff that kind of, well, I, that sticks around with me. Yeah. I kind of just, uh, just for my own personal taste and excitement i get you know i get over things pretty quickly but i think i told you when we were talking about that track earlier about yeah. you know back in sheffield 97 playing it so it's like but yeah when i was resident for wax the jam last year in ibiza uh, it's just one of those tracks it's yeah. like no one's walking off the dance floor when you play that <laughs> let's just say that you know that, that that's it and and um no one's not dancing either and to something that's actually really kind of authentic sounding as well yeah. not that i've got anything against anything sounding too electronic or anything but that's just a good funk yeah it's got all the drums it, and the know, funk like, yeah 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 so yeah so that that's that really that makes sense to to have that for that reason cool and a sunsetter sunsetter yeah well i went for summer madness cool in the gang mm. i was toying between that or some vangelis stuff which is really actually probably more more blissed well, out. i'll tell you now that we've done an interview with harry romero and I think he chose Cool and the Gang Summer Madness for his Sunsetter. Right. So if you wanted something different okay. in a playlist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the thing is, I, I mean, I'm happy with Summer Madness. It's yeah. a great track. The funny thing is, I was like that, you know, doing that old quote, what do you think to my girlfriend last night? And they just say what they'd like anyway, and you don't pay any attention to that. What they say is not really going to change anything. I was like, I just couldn't think. I stuck out thing. I was like, there's, I said, there's a Van Gelis track I, that I was like really into. I said, I remember doing a chilled out tape in like 95 when I went on holiday. I remember putting a Van Gelis track on it. So I was going through Blade Runner soundtrack last night. I was like, I can't, I can't work out what it is. And that's probably because, you know, there's not that there's any beats in Summer Madness, but, um, you know, the Vangelis is way more classic. Café Del Mar, Sunset, mm. you know, totally chill. But, yeah, Cool in the Gang, Summer Madness is, yeah. is a cool track. And also, when, when I pulled it up on YouTube to show me partner, I was like, there's a picture of a sunset. I was like, oh, look, there you go. <laughs> I'll take that as a sign. But if I do find out what the uh, Vangelis... Oh, no, do you know what? I'll stick with what it is. Stick with, it, who, stick who, with that. Who else is going to join the dots and go, oh, I remember... I <laughs> That is obviously got good taste as well. <laughs> Absolutely, I think when he, I think in the interview, I remember him describing it as when you hear that track, it's like taking a hit on a, on a big spliff. It's yeah, got, yeah. got that kind of real feeling. Yeah. Um, a tearjerker. We were talking about it beforehand, yeah, weren't we? But yeah. 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 Well, I mean, uh, the the honest answer is nothing springs to mind as like something that just makes me cry. Anyway, as a as a song, uh, nothing was springing to mind. I was having to think about it too hard. And then, like I said to you though, but music can make me emotional anyway without it being about the content. So just on a resonance le level, uh, I can listen to something, whether it's something from my past, I don't know if it connects something energetically, it's uh, some subconscious thing that's within me, I don't know, but it's not in a, it's, it's by no means in an upsetting way. Hmm. It's just a release of emotion. I kind of, oh, I choke. Nine times out of ten, it's a choke more than actually crying. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, mm. the weird thing is as well, it's like I've caught myself many times over the years. It's very rare I'd actually tell someone in that moment, this is what's happening. But I'll be telling, I could be telling you now a story about a tune or something. And I can actually feel myself welling up. I mean, it's like, I don't know why I'm welling up. 
because it's not like oh this, this story's so you know it's not about that yeah but for whatever reason it's almost that it's, it almost affects you in the same way as hearing the music mm. so as i explained i chose um uh marvin gay uh what's happening brother mm. and it's, it's my favorite album of all time uh it was released on the day that i was born uh, as I showed you there, I've got a copy from 1971, never played. So I'm totally connected to this record on, on loads of levels. And it's not that it makes me cry, but there's a, there's a feeling and an energy that runs throughout the whole of that album, as we mm. discussed earlier, which is, I think it definitely comes across what he, what they were feeling and what was in the air at the time. And the sentiment behind a lot of the tracks, you know, is definitely in there. And I think he was... Marvin was channeling some shit when he when he made that album, yeah. and uh, yeah, I feel that. So today, it was only today earlier. I sent you that early, didn't yeah. I? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was like, right, I'm gonna go for that. First, I was thinking, what's going on? Because I've cried before when that's been on. Mm. I don't know, maybe having a bad day or something. I just put <laughs> that, and I just like, oh, I'll let myself just wallow in that for a moment. Yeah. But I was like, no, it's that. That's the one. It's the the emotion in the in the backing vocals oh. as well the harmonies in it yeah, just like yeah, look, I get yeah it, now talking about it it just nails it so um, on all those levels and the fact that it's as old as i am and uh as we said it's still it's just as relevant today as if it was made today yeah completely you know, time timeless yeah yeah uh, and a masterpiece as well yeah for me i love it and the last tune yeah not an obvious choice but i guess what is so if and I thought about this, I'm like, I I've never had a I've never had a last tune like one that I've got planned. I've never had the same way as I've never had real kind of floor fillers as well. It's like every gig's different, and the gig may go a completely different way, and yeah, yeah, and you just don't get to do that. So my last tunes definitely tend to be spontaneous. But when I chose this track, I just kind of thought, right, if if I've just DJed now, and I've just finished now. You know, based on how I'm feeling now, I'm like, what would you give them as, you know, if they were shouting like one more? So I kind of saw it as I'd have played a completely different kind of vibe to what this track is. But the track is an old uh, West End, which is obviously mm. a benchmark label, disco label. Uh, and the track is by Force. It's called Keep On Dancing. I just love the, I love everything about it. Such a quirky little track. And that opening guitar lick, just that on its own you were that it's like it's like where the fuck's this going like, <laughs> you know what i mean and uh, and then the way all the percussion comes in and mm. how loose it is and mm -hmm. everything the production on that it's like that's always going to sound good in a club yeah. and if you can't dance to that then it's a good job i'm playing it as the last tune because it's time you got off in it you know <laughs> it's time you left uh, so yeah I, I it's the kind of thing I, if i if i've been having a good night just you know, sweating it out to house music all night, and yeah. that little curveball got thrown in at the end. I'd be, I'd be happy going home on. Yeah, you're banging on the, the DJ yeah. booth door saying, yeah, "What is this? this?" And then be like, "Oh shit, you've got it already. You know, <laughs> that one. I've done that before." But like, what's this? Then they show you it, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I gave that back in the record shop. <laughs> down here, go back to Eastern Block the next day. Like, well, can I have that tune again?" <laughs> Amazing. Um, and. The one final question we always ask is, um, we are house culture, you are part of the culture of house music and the whole scene. If you could sum up kind of what it's brought to you in your in your life and the best experiences that it's given you, looking at it from a positive aspect, how do you kind of 
look back on it and look forward i mean the best thing ever it is the best thing ever it it's just a weird one because you know for a long time it, it's something that's always moving so you, you, you never really sit around too long to reflect you know you get opportunities like this you know when we opened up and you were like oh okay you've done this 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 and i'm like oh yeah <laughs> me that in it should be mincing now shouldn't I? I mean, with all that on my cv but um yeah but oh, just the best thing ever you know on on every level to kind of like uh, the whole thing is uh i see as uh quite romancing really to kind of catch it on the catch it on the cusp and the whole summer of love and everything being open and then you know that the the reverberations of that will go with me to my grave and wherever i go from then on do you know what i mean mm. for, for sure um you know in, in i mean i was 18 19 20 so that the influence of that now as a bloke who's 50 next you know he's like still influencing me the way you are with people uh, the way you think about things and you know uh, music and interacting and on every level so and then you know just like endless good times yeah you know they're on tough just like spoil it's like oh is this what my life is when that's your life and it's just like no wonder you're like this for those that can't see i've got a beaming smile it's like every <laughs> photograph it's like happy days Happy days, it's like, oh, life is shit. It's like, you know, of course not. It's like, um, you know, to turn it into music and be paid from it and being out and experiencing it from both sides, you know, being enthused by who you're listening to and, uh, you know, being enthused by playing to people and what you mm. can do, you know. For, so still, I, I still like the both sides, you know, the punter and the DJ thing, you know yeah. what I mean? I don't know if this really answers your question, what you're saying, but I, I, I couldn't really sum it up in one word. But I just think the whole experience as something to be part of. You know, let's say if I'd have been, no disrespect to anybody that is, but let's say I'd have been a mechanic or a welder or something, mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of what I do. And I get up and put me up, put me mucky overalls on and go to work and do what I do and come home. Probably can't wash the oil off my hands properly and all that, you know, and do the best you can. Yeah. Dry it. All, all, all that is like, there's that experience. Or there's like your your lifestyle is your job as such, and your lifestyle is actually something that that actually brings you lots of joy and takes you to lots of different places and debauchery and all that kind of side as well as everything everything else, you know. To to actually be to actually go through all the different stages and just be in a <laughs> just be at a stage where I'm I'm actually just all right you now with, with life, without having to do this or that to make it any better, and then everything else around it is also amazing as well. Yeah, you know, it's like it's a really nice thirty years plus of like. You know, it's like, well, who knows where stuff's going now? Just, you know what? There's there's the answer right there. It's like, who knows? It's like, so you can't even go down that road. It's like, let's just see what we can do today. Yeah. See where it takes us. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. the best we can. You know, if I want to still live as, as, as joyful a life as I can do, given circumstances, mm -hmm. you know, sounds, I don't know what it sounds, it sounds naff, doesn't it? But, you know, you've got to be happy with where you're at as well, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and uh, this is where this is where we're at so that's happy days for now <laughs> that's brilliant that is the perfect place to end no worries, man. house culture well i hope you enjoyed that one as much as i did i love meeting buckley such a cool guy and he's full of hilarious stories isn't he oh man i don't think i'll ever listen to an abc track again without thinking of that martin fry story 
And if you want to check out what the Buckley sound is all about, you can listen to his exclusive 90-minute house culture mix on our SoundCloud page. Head on over to soundcloud.com slash housecultureNet for a slice of delicious dance floor goodness. You can also find Buckley's choices for our perfect playlist over on Spotify. All you need to do is open up your Spotify player, search for House Culture Perfect Playlist, and here you'll find all of the tunes that Buckley and I chatted about, as well as submissions from all of our previous podcast guests. Make sure you follow it to stay up to date with what is now a huge selection of Stone Cold classics, forgotten gems and new discoveries. Once you've tucked into all of those tunes, please help support the House Culture Podcast by loving, liking, tweeting, sharing and rating or reviewing us on Apple. As I always say, this last bit is really important. Please help make a difference. If you say something good, we'll give you a shout out on the next episode. This time I have to say a huge hello to Steve Turner. He got in touch with me on Facebook to say that he loved listening to his fellow hometown boys Shades of Rhythm discuss their career in our last episode. He thought that their Diana Ross top of the pop story was hilarious. Make sure you check that out if you haven't already and stay tuned to our podcast as we round out this second season at the end of this year with some huge guests. Believe me, you're not going to want to miss these ones. To make sure you keep abreast of our releases and stay connected to other house music lovers the world over, hit up our Instagram feed at HouseCultureNet or follow the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. And finally, don't forget, if you want to get in touch with me, Matt Rouse, you can contact me directly on Instagram at DJ Matt Rouse. Thanks for listening, stay safe and see you next time. House Culture Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.